0: The Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit is now in session. All persons having any business before this Honorable Court may give their attendance and they shall be heard. God save the United States of America and this Honorable Court. Court is in session. Today's cases will be, today's case will be called as previously announced and the times will be as allotted to counsel. The first case today is New Hampshire Lottery et al. versus William P. Barr et al. Appeal number 191835.
1: Good morning, uh, Attorneys uh, Galdieri and McGill, counsel for the FLEs. Please uh, mute your uh, radio, your uh, audio, I should say. Uh, Attorney Sandberg, uh, please unmute your audio and proceed with your opening statement, which is limited to two minutes.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, and may it please the court. Jeff Sandberg for the United States. Um, with the court's permission, I'd like to reserve a few minutes for rebuttal, uh, four minutes if possible.
1: Um, I,
2: if it's possible, if, if,
1: I, don't, I don't know if, if you are allowed that much time. If it is, you, you are. It's granted.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the DOJ Office of Legal Counsel opined in 2018 that the prohibitions in Section 1084A of the Wire Act are not uniformly limited to sports gambling. Uh, That is all that OLC opined. OLC did not opine on whether the Wire Act applies to state lotteries and their vendors, and if so, as to which activities or to what extent. The Deputy Attorney General confirmed uh, in a subsequent memorandum that the Department currently has no position on how or whether the statute applies to plaintiffs or others in their class. And he expressly announced that the Department will not pursue enforcement against plaintiffs or other state lottery systems unless and until a determination is made one, their conduct is actually illegal, and two, some further warning is given. So as of right now, plaintiffs face no threat of prosecution for anything they've done in the past, anything they're currently doing, or anything they will do in the future indefinitely. Those facts demonstrate that there's no Article 3 case or controversy here. For pre-enforcement claims to be justiciable, plaintiffs must show that they face a credible threat of prosecution now. There's not only a lack of a credible threat, there's no threat at all. Indeed, at this point, there's not even any adversarialness on the question whether plaintiff's conduct is illegal. The other threshold legal uh, issue in this case, which is raised only on the Lottery Commission's uh, distinct admin law claim, is that there's no final agency action reviewable under the APA. Uh, It's not clear why the district court saw the need to reach this APA claim, given that it provides no additional relief beyond what the plaintiffs already got on their pre-enforcement claim, which is a declaration that their conduct is lawful and they cannot be prosecuted. Uh, But in any event, having reached the claim, the district court fundamentally erred in ruling that an OLC opinion standing alone is final agency action. OLC opinions are advice internal to the uh, federal government, and they cannot and do not directly affect the legal rights of private parties out in the world. An OLC opinion may well be a precursor to final agency action if an agency later takes action premised on it, but in that case, it is the further agency action that is the focus of review and not OLC's predecisional advice. That's on time the
1: merits. I believe your two minutes are up. And I will proceed to uh, ask you a couple of questions uh, within possibly four minutes. Am I to understand that your position is that there is no possibility that the 2018 Office of Legal Counsel uh, interpretation of the statute could be enforced at any time in the future? Is that what you're saying?
2: Uh, against these plaintiffs, uh, the Deputy Attorney General has made clear the department will not pursue enforcement against these plaintiffs unless and until, one, their conduct is determined to be unlawful, and two, some further warning is given. So as it stands, they will not be subject to prosecution. That's correct.
1: Will you, will you answer whether it's at any time in the future?
2: Well, the department has not has not said unequivocally that the state lotteries are not subject to the statute. It, it has no position on that question. Um, but, the, but we, we're not arguing that what they're doing is unlawful. There's no adversarialness on that question yet. There's no credible threat of prosecution at this time. And, and that's the Article 3 test. If in the future the department were to say, you know, having considered the question, we believe plaintiffs conduct to be unlawful to the extent of, you know, this particular sale of, of products over the internet, at that point, you may well have a ripe Article Three dispute, and and we can we can uh, debate at that point whether there's a credible threat of prosecution. But at this point, we we're not there yet. We don't. Uh, the, the department has disclaimed any immediate enforcement, and it has indicated that enforcement would only happen based on a, a future public statement that plaintiffs' conduct is illegal. <clears throat> is the
1: 2018? Uh, interpretation, a change in the interpretation of the statute.
2: It is a change, uh, Your Honor. In, in OLC, OLC in 2011 had opined that the Wire Act was, all four offenses of the Wire Act were uniformly limited to sports gambling. That itself had been a departure from the Department's position for 50 years, which was that uh, the, the Wire Act was not uniformly limited to sports gambling. And what's particularly noteworthy is that in that 50-year period, um the, gov- the the federal government never brought any prosecutions against state lotteries or their vendors, even though it was enforcing the statute against numerous other forms of non sports gambling um well, including excuse
1: me, let's let's stick to the two thousand eighteen am I to interpret your answer that it is a change in the interpretation of the statute
2: it it's a change in the interpretation from the of the statute from two thousand eleven i am not I
1: see, hello excuse me you could answer yes or no it would it would save some time
2: Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I'm not. I'm not sure what the significance of that is because the, the well, interpretation why, why of a criminal. That,
1: why? Why doesn't that change require some action under the Administrative Procedure Act?
2: Because the, this is a criminal statute that is interpreted by courts. The the DOJ gets no deference. OLC gets no deference from this court on how it interprets the statute, which makes this markedly different from an APA case where you've got got to worry about Chevron deference, right? It doesn't matter whether the department has, you know, written a long reasoning or short reasoning on its legal interpretation here. This is just an abstract legal interpretation. It's entitled to no deference. And so to the extent the Amici in this case are arguing that the department, you know, acted arbitrarily because it failed to give – adequate consideration to reliance interests of parties. Well, that, that's only relevant when an agency is claiming Chevron deference. If you go and read the cases cited in, in their brief, Smiley versus Citibank and uh, Encino Motor Cars, that's, that's about whether an agency gets Chevron deference. But agency, the DOJ is not claiming Chevron deference here. <clears throat> and if this court were to reach uh, the merits... Uh,
1: excuse me. Uh, did the uh, Department of Justice uh, urge lack of finality before the district court
2: yes it did we we argued that the apa claim can you, can was you not point proper a
1: record on that please
2: um in our reply brief we cite to the relevant uh i think we cite to our reply uh to our filing in district court i don't have it uh immediately handy i'd be happy to um uh get you the the citation on rebuttal
1: please said okay yes uh, okay but but you claim that you did raise that issue of of lack of finality before the district judge?
2: Yes, we did. We very much did so. The the plaintiffs have have tried to, they've they've said, look, we haven't teed up the final agency action argument in precisely the same way that we're doing it in this court. And that's because the district court committed errors that we didn't, you know, in its reasoning that we didn't fully anticipate. But we absolutely argued that there was no final agency action reviewable under the APA. We absolutely argued that the plaintiffs could get review of the merits of this question if they could satisfy Article Three standing and ripeness. However, we don't think that this is a ripe case or controversy because they can't any of the any of the ways that this court has recognized for for showing a credible threat of prosecution. None of them exist here. There's no there's no threat of enforcement against these parties. There's no been no threat of enforcement against other state lotteries. There's been no history of enforcement against state lotteries. That's, that's time, and, Judge.
1: Thank you. Uh, My four minutes are up. Judge Lynch, do you have any questions for uh, Mr. Sandberg? Yes, I do. Um,
3: Mr. Sandberg, uh, predictably you're here uh, arguing, heavily relying on the ripeness issue. But this litigation was started as a result of uh, the alarm in the various state lotteries as to the 2018 uh, change uh, in position, and then uh, the enforcement memo, which happened, and uh, only after that, after the uh, plaintiffs had filed their suit, did your uh, uh, office for the first time say, in essence, gee, wait a minute, we didn't mean what we said earlier. Uh, the issue of state lotteries is a complicated one, and now uh, we want to take another look at it, and therefore there's not a case or controversy. So let's go back to the period of time before you uh, issued, after the lawsuit uh, was brought, the, uh, uh, before you issued this sort of retraction. Is it your position that before that time there was an Article Three case or controversy and that the issue was ripe?
2: No, there there absolutely was not an Article 3 case or controversy at that point. Um, The the factors that this court looks to in deciding whether there's a credible threat of prosecution were no more present um, in in February uh, 2019 when the suit was filed than they were later in April. And and I would respectfully disagree with the characterization that this was a retraction or or a change from what the department had said before. What the department said in, in the January 2019 memo was that it was going to give time for businesses that relied on the the prior OLC opinion, to bring their uh, operations into compliance with federal law. It didn't speak to state lotteries or their vendors. uh,
3: Counsel, I get the point, but let's look at that earlier period before March, and could you tell me why you think the case was not ripe at that point?
2: because we had not taken a public position that the plaintiff's conduct is illegal we had not pursued any uh, enforcement against state lotteries uh,
3: counsel nothing in your uh, 2018 interpretation excluded state lotteries so are you making a sort of uh uh the case wasn't right because what we said was vague
2: I I suppose so, Your Honor. I mean, there's there's only one question that was addressed in the OLC opinion. There are many questions to be answered under the Wire Act, right? One is, how, how, if at all, does this statute apply to state lotteries that didn't exist in 1961 when the Wire Act was enacted and only came into being later? The the only question that OLC opined on is, are these offenses uniformly limited to sports gambling? And OLC said no. But there are other questions to be answered under the statute. One is, does the statute enacted in 1961 prohibited conduct by state lotteries that began in the 1960s and has evolved over time, taking different forms and how the the wires are used. Congress has enacted statutes since then that expressly recognize that state lotteries are are engaged in conduct. There's express exceptions for for state lotteries under uh, 18 U.S.C. 1307, for example. These are difficult questions, and the Department would have have to take time to consider them before it's and, and frankly, you know, this is not a question that, it, that is a significant priority for the department relative to other questions it's, it's facing. And so, you know, certainly if the department thought that it wanted to go after state lotteries, it, it, it wouldn't have taken, you know, 14. This question has been pending with the department for some time, as you'll probably hear the plaintiff say, but if, if this was a, a huge priority, if there actually was a credible threat of prosecution, certainly the department would have, you well, know, taken some action by me, now. Uh,
3: pardon me, but it seems to me there were considerable reliance interests not only in the states, but also in the ancillary businesses' reliance interests uh, that uh, caused them to invest hundreds of millions of dollars based on the 2011 uh, decision. And those reliance interests were put into jeopardy by the 2018 decision, you may say it's vague, but uh, they certainly felt that, that their uh, interests were threatened. So before I uh, finish here, could you just spend two minutes on the merits? Should we not decide your uh, rightness issue as you want? Is it really the position of the government now that you are taking No position whatsoever as to the uh, meaning of the Wire Act in as challenged in this lawsuit.
2: We are taking no position on the Wire Act as it may apply to state lotteries or their vendors, which are the, the plaintiffs to this case. Neil Pollard. Pollard uh, Bank Note and the New Hampshire Lottery Commission are state lotteries and their vendors, and we have no position on whether their conduct is unlawful, and we have made a public commitment that we will not enforce them for anything they have done in the past or currently doing or will do in the future. Uh, we have taken a position that the YRX is not uniformly limited to sports gambling, and there are entities that are not state lotteries for their vendors um, that, that, as you point out, ha- may have acted in reliance on the 2011 OLC opinion. However, those parties are not plaintiffs in, in, in this court. They're, and the, So the, the Article three question is, have these state lotteries and their vendors established that they have a credible threat of prosecution? As, as to other entities, non-state lotteries, they're currently subject to a forbearance uh, by the department. and That was the subject of the 28J letter we sent you earlier this week. Um, on, the, on the merits of the question, uh, the phrase on which the district court relied here, the phrase assisting in the placing of bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest, appears only once within the Statutes for Prohibitions. It's it's uh, at the end of offense two. And the appropriate inference from the text and structure, looking at 1084A, the general rule, and 1084B, the exceptions, is that that phrase modifies only the particular prohibition that it's a part of. Congress didn't put the sporting event or contest modifier in a preparatory clause. It didn't repeat it in every clause. It didn't use an express shorthand. All of those things it did do in 1084B, uh, uh, or, or sorry, the latter two things it did do in 1084B, the exceptions, it referred to sporting events or contests over and over okay, again. Can,
3: and, uh, uh, thank you, Council. I have it. I will defer to my colleague,
4: Judge Kayata, at this point. Judge yes. Kayata, you have questions? Uh, I had a couple of questions for Council, Um and, and on, on the standing issues, I had thought that one of the justifications the 2018 opinion cited for changing uh, the view from 2011 was to precipitate judicial review. I think it says that, doesn't it?
2: Yes, it does. It recognizes that if a U.S. attorney were to pursue, for example, uh, enforcement of the Wire Act against an online poker company, and, and that company was indicted, the, the company could move to dismiss that indictment in a criminal proceeding saying, I don't think this, this what my conduct is covered by the Wire Act, and then there would be judicial review at that point. But OLC wasn't saying that we anticipate pre-enforcement review by parties whose conduct we haven't even opined on yet. Um, but I, so didn't
4: see, I, I didn't see any distinction between lotteries run by states and other forms in that citation to judicial review.
2: That, that's right. Um, OLC was just making the general point, which comes up, uh, you know, often in questions about whether, you know, as, as it did under the Defense of Marriage Act, where, where the department, having concluded that the law was unconstitutional, nonetheless continued to enforce it so that there could then be an Article three case or controversy for this court, among others, to opine on the question. It, it was just OLC observing that if we allow prosecutors to go forth and test this application of the Wire Act against parties engaged in non-sports forms of gambling, um, there would be judicial review and in the posture most likely of a motion to dismiss the indictment. But OLC wasn't, you know, saying we think that, you know, it's, it's, we're, we, we expect pre-enforcement review challenges to be brought by state lotteries.
4: And then if I'm understanding the present status quo, as as you've explained it, I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I think what you're saying is that these state lotteries that bring in, Hundreds of millions of dollars for the states and are incorporated into their budget planning and their budget. That the state of any state could wake up tomorrow morning and find out that if it doesn't substantially change its lottery within 90 days, its officials could go to jail.
2: Uh, it, if the, yes, if the department changes its position and announces that it thinks that state lotteries are engaged in conduct that is illegal, at that point, I think the plaintiffs would have a, a much stronger and, and frankly, a, a quite strong um, argument that they should be able to obtain pre-enforcement review at that juncture. But we're not there yet. As it stands, we've, we've not only disclaimed any enforcement. We, we don't even disagree with them. Uh, as as to whether their conduct is illegal or not. There's no adversarialness as to these plaintiffs yet in this litigation.
4: If they get that call, if they get that call from you tomorrow, starting the 90 day clock, what do they do the day after tomorrow to, I mean, this is, aren't these sort of like aircraft carriers? You can't turn them around quickly. The the state budget is contingent on, on the funding. What do they do the day after they get that call from you?
2: Well, the it's, although the department has, you know, committed itself to providing at least that 90-day forbearance period, there's nothing that prevents the department from taking, you know, the, the considerations that you quite rightly uh, um, have raised into account. And, you know, certainly there's been, for, for parties that are not state lotteries and their vendors, for the other, you know, online poker companies of the world, there's been a lengthy forbearance period during the length of this litigation. Um And, uh I you know, certainly the state lotteries, have you know a, a tremendous voice within their state governments and they you know right, there could right,
4: be right now as as we sit here today i think if i'm understanding you correctly it's 90 days and on the 91st day you could be in find yourself arrested
2: <clears throat> yes but that's not enough to that's not that's not enough to show a credible threat of prosecution and we never pursued state lotteries and their vendors um, um, with indictments before. Uh, the only thing the plaintiffs have pointed to, which I'm sure they'll call to your attention, is a 2005 letter that was sent to the, the Illinois lottery about a pending bill in the Illinois legislature. Um, and uh, that you know, that letter cited a few different statutes, not just the Wire Act. It was passed before UGIA. It referred generally to unlawful internet gambling. It didn't speak to the, the, the way that state lotteries carry out their traditional operations. And so that's you know, that, that piece of evidence is a very thin read that you're going to be hearing about. Uh, aside from that, there's no history of enforcement uh, against it, anything you could call enforcement in the entire history of the Wire Act. And so there's no reason for these, these plaintiffs currently to fear enforcement. Indeed, we've disclaimed that we will pursue any enforcement against them. And um, uh, Thank you. Um, I've, I've lost track of my own time. I don't know whether I, I have any time remaining. Um, but I, whatever I have left, I, I would like to say for a rebuttal.
1: All right. Um, uh, I, think, I think at this point you have to mute your uh, audio and uh, we will hear from Attorney uh, Gagliardi.
5: May it please the court. My name is Anthony Galderi and I represent the appellee, the New Hampshire Lottery Commission. New Hampshire, yeah, sir, like you, you have one minute. New Hampshire, like most states, Puerto Rico, the District of Columbia, and the US Virgin Islands operate lotteries. These lotteries generate millions of dollars of revenue that these sovereigns use to fund critical operations of their governments. In New Hampshire, lottery proceeds are directed to support public education. In fiscal year twenty eighteen alone, the Commission generated eighty seven point two million dollars for public education. The 2018 opinion puts these multimillion-dollar public education contributions at risk. It makes it illegal for entities in the business of non-sports betting or wagering to use the interstate wires to transmit bets or wagers or to transmit prizes resulting from bets or wagers. It reverses the 2011 opinion and, in doing so, restores the pre-2011 position of the Department of Justice's criminal division, as referenced in the 2011 opinion itself, the Wire Act extends to state lotteries and prohibits them from using the interstate wires to transact bets or wagers. The 2018 opinion therefore criminalizes how modern-day lotteries do business and exposes state lotteries that relied on the 2011 opinion to criminal sanction. The district court correctly concluded, however, that the Wire Act is limited solely to sports betting, consistent
1: with the 2011 opinion.
0: That's time, Judge.
1: Uh, counsel, do you understand the government's position, uh, to be that they will not prosecute, prosecute, uh, your clients, uh, until they decide that, uh, it's illegal activity? No, Your Honor. We understand the,
5: the April 8th, 2019 memo to be, uh, a temporary act of prosecutorial discretion that holds out, uh, only the possibility that the department may, revise its position uh in the future uh, but that certainly that could be retracted uh tomorrow and uh we will have 90 days to try to conform a massive operation to the wire act or uh in the 2018 opinion or risk criminal prosecution uh, a 90-day period which would not be possible to comply with
1: thank you i have no further questions judge lynch
3: Um, Council, let's put the ripeness issue aside for a minute. Um, Underlying that April 8th memo is um, and I agree it doesn't give you much protection but it is a notion that maybe state lotteries will be treated differently because they are states and maybe uh the question of the extent of the uh wire act um uh possibly could go beyond um uh sports gambling um so they seem to be uh attempting to um well leave some wiggle room but um the relief you asked for was uh, not confined merely to yourselves. It was for a, a statutory interpretation of the Wire Act that will apply to a number of uh, parties. That interpretation will apply to a number of parties who are not states, who are not state lotteries. Um, uh it, there's no real briefing on who they might be. So uh, is that a cause for concern for us, and if not, why not?
5: Uh, I, I don't think it is, Your Honor. Um, we asked um, for a declaration below on, on both points. We asked for a declaration uh, that state lotteries are not subject to the WIRE Act, uh, and for a declaration that the WIRE Act is limited to sports betting. Uh, we advanced several arguments regarding why the state would be exempt or states would be exempt from the WIRE Act, um, which were rejected. Um, the U.S. DOJ didn't take a position for a period of time. There was supplemental briefing after the argument on this issue, and as the district court's opinion reflects, the U.S. DOJ rejected our arguments uh, as to why um the Lottery Commission and state lotteries would be exempt. Um, that appears to have caused the district court to um, have issued a, a declaration on the other issue, which is whether the Wire Act is limited uh, solely to sports betting. Um, I, I don't believe it's cause for concern. It gives us the relief um, that we seek, and it is relief um, that you know we relied on when it
3: was in the 2011 yeah. And so, more or less, you're arguing they hold themselves on their own petard. That's
5: correct, Your Honor. They've had every opportunity to address the uh, the Dictionary Act argument that we, we raised. We raised arguments uh, surrounding 18 U.S.C. Section 1307. We raised Tenth uh, Amendment argument. Uh, state yeah, rule. I'm just
3: uh, – I'm curious about that. Suppose a state were to uh, – um, change its lottery and go into sports gambling. Uh, So um, is the 10th Amendment an issue if Congress tries to, under the Wire Act, um, say, well, those different type of state lotteries um, can't uh, proceed?
5: I think it is, Your Honor, absent, absent a clear statement from Congress that state lottery conduct with respect to sports betting would intend uh, uh, to be regulated, that that would be a problem under the 10th Amendment.
3: Yeah, okay, thank you. I uh, give the rest of my time to Judge Kayata. Judge Kayotta, you, you may
1: proceed.
4: Yes, Kemp, I do have a question. The, the Um, um, If you could turn to the merits of the two OLC opinions. The government makes the point, as I understand it, that in the draft bill, there was a comma uh, before and after the phrase or information assisting in the placing of bets or wages on any sporting event or contest, that there was then questions in the uh, legislative record about how... Whether this applied only to sports betting or not. And then the final bill deleted those two commas. So, so that prompts a couple of questions. Is, is it, do you agree that if those commas had been kept in, then it would have been, um, clear that your position on the merits is correct?
5: Uh, I, I think that's right, Your Honor. I think if those commas were kept in, uh, that that there would be a different construction uh, potentially to the statute um, and that the results uh, may be different. Uh, but um, the commas aren't in. And uh, the question of whether uh, the absence of, I, I think, particular uh, punctuation um, can control uh the meaning uh of the statute in, in in such a serious way um would not swing in the other direction uh at, at best um i think the statute would be uh, ambiguous um and the statute you know has to be read holistically to to further its its overall purpose which is to stop the criminal enterprise from using the interstate wires to further its gambling business and the WIRE Act accomplishes that goal cleanly with respect to sports betting. Uh, it yes. does not accomplish that goal cleanly with respect to non-sports
4: betting. Well, let me go back to your first point, because I see what you're saying when you say, when we're parsing closely grammar and syntax, the, we should have some caution about reading too much into the absence of, of something. My concern here, though, is that I'd like some help with is it's not just the absence of the two commas, it's the deletion of two commas that were there in the draft bill. I'm having some difficulty thinking of why Congress would have taken out those two commas other than to reject the interpretation that you and I seem to agree would have followed had the commas been there.
6: Well,
5: I, I, I'm not sure there's there's an answer to that uh, that question by looking at the record, um, other than to to sort of speculate um, as to as to what the the result of that uh, may have been. Um, We would we would suggest that the deletion of those those commas does not, um, at best, would render the statute ambiguous and place it in a position um, where it 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 could be interpreted one way or the other. But if you interpret it in accordance uh, with the 2018 opinion, that it leads to some very bizarre and inexplicable results, like the fact that persons engaged in the business of non-sports betting. Would be afforded an, informa- uh, an, an informational advantage over persons engaged in the business of sports betting. Uh, they would be able to transmit uh, information assisting in the placing of sports, uh, bet, non-sports bets or wagers uh, o- over the over the wires to facilitate essentially their criminal enterprise. While persons in the business of sports betting could not. Um, why why would Congress do that? no no purpose appears on the face of the statute or in the structure of it or in the legislative history. That's uh, time, you. Judge.
1: All right. Um, Attorney McGill, you have one minute opening statement.
6: So, oh, uh, thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. If the 2018 OLC opinion itself had reserved the question of the Wire Act's applicability to state lotteries, this might be a harder case for justiciability. But the 2018 OLC opinion does no such thing. Instead, it says at page 77 of the addendum, the Wire Act, quote, "...on its face applies to bets or wagers of any kind." And we know that OLC had lotteries specifically in mind because at Addendum 88 and 89, OLC acknowledged the reliance interests of the states that, quote, began selling, selling lottery tickets via the Internet, end quote, after the issuance of the 2011 OLC opinion but OLC said those states' reliance interests were insufficient to overcome what it saw as the plain language of the statute. OLC instead suggested that states seek relief from Congress, which OLC reminded the states, without a trace of irony, alone has the power to broaden or narrow the Wire Act's prohibitions. That posed at least a clear and present danger of prosecution than, than, than was present in the hemp council case. The, question, the next question is whether the April 2019 opinion uh, or memo, this issue just three days before the summary judgment hearing, somehow diffused the controversy so as to defeat the plaintiff's suit. The court should compare the statements made by the U.S. DOJ in that April 2019 memo with those made in the Rhode Island Association of Realtors case. In that case, the state argued that the plaintiff's proposed conduct, quote, does not appear to fall within the parameters of the prohibition, end quote.
0: That's the but time, court- Judge. i justify- sorry,
1: i phrase your statement. Okay, just
6: to finish, Judge Torea, but this court in, in that case still rejected that cautious phrasing as a, quote, far cry from a flat commitment not to prosecute. The government's comp- post-complaint statements in this case do not even remotely approach the type of disavowal of both intent to prosecute and coverage of the statute that negated Article Three Justiciability in Blum versus Holder.
1: Thank you. Um... I will, uh, I don't have any questions of, uh, of, of, of Attorney McGill. I, I, I yield my time to Judge Lynch.
3: Um, this perhaps you can help me with this. Um, in some ways this case is a mixture of uh on the ripeness issue of uh, civil and criminal law um and the government tends to pose the argument as though it's merely a question of uh risk of uh enforcement um and there are responses to that uh, but uh, your approach seems to go beyond that, um, and you uh, ask us to parse the language and uh, look at it uh, in terms of uh, the lack of any assurance of non-prosecution after uh, clear statements that, uh, seem to say that the lotteries were subject to prosecution. Um, should one think of this merely as a uh, criminal law pre-enforcement case?
6: Well, Your Honor, I I think it it is quite similar to the Rhode Island Association of Realtors case, except that it here the DOJ's April 18th memo is far more equivocal uh, as to the liability of the, uh, of, of the plaintiffs. And it is, uh, and it arises under, frankly, much more suspicious circumstances coming just three days before the hearing on the motion for summary judgment. Um, you, I mean, it, if you wanted to look at a case that blended the civil and the criminal, you might look to the, the Supreme Court's decision in Abbott Lab's where the regulation there had both civil and criminal implications, and the court said there, when a regulation requires an immediate and significant change in the plaintiffs' conduct of their affairs, with serious penalties attached to noncompliance, access to courts under the Administrative Procedure Act and the Declaratory Judgment Act must be permitted.
3: Um, okay, yeah. that that's helpful. Thank you.
4: That that ends my questioning. Judge Cayada, do you have questions? Um, yes, I did. I, I, if you could just take a half minute or so and say, how, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding how does an APA claim here, you know, as if you're right, let's put this rightness to one side, assume it's right, you get an adjudication one way or the other on your um judgment. judgment. Why, why would... It seems you're saying virtually any time OLC comes out with an opinion memo, there's someone somewhere who could bring an APA action.
6: Oh, I I, I don't think that's what we're saying at all, Judge Kayada, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to address address that. This is not any ordinary OLC opinion. The OLC opinion here is performing a rulemaking function. If this opinion were issued as a regulation of the Federal Communications Commission, there would be no doubt that it was final agency action subject to review and that the change in the executive's working law here is announced in an OLC opinion shouldn't really change that outcome. It's not deliberative advice internal to the department. It's an edict solicited by interested private persons that was published to the public at large precisely to end businesses' reliance on the 2011 OLC opinion. And to generate compliance in that public at large with the new opinion. It's just like the rule in Abbott Labs. The OLC opinion purports to give an authoritative interpretation of a statutory provision that has a direct effect on the day to day business of the plaintiffs. I'm not aware of any other OLC opinion that does that.
4: But but the that if, you, argument- if you otherwise if you otherwise have an adequate remedy, i thought Generally, we stayed away from the APA. I thought we went to the APA largely when there wasn't an adequate remedy otherwise.
6: Well, the, in Abbott Labs itself, is a, it, both both claims were brought under the Declaratory Judgment Act and under the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, so, I think that it's amply uh, supported by precedent to proceed uh, to proceed both ways. Um, you know. It, they, there are, there are more, uh, more parallels to Abbott Labs in this case. In, in Abbott Labs also, the government argued that the, that the FDA didn't have prosecutorial power, uh, just like it says the OLC doesn't have prosecutorial power here. But the court recognized that the exposure to the possibility of enforcement by DOJ had bite sufficient to warrant judicial review. And here, Quite unlike Abbott Labs, OLC's opinion does bind the department. You see that at page 85 of the addendum. Uh, finally, also in Abbott Labs, the Justice Department made new representations to try to defeat review. The Solicitor General in that case, and that you see this at page 154 of Abbott Labs, absolutely forswore any possibility of the use of criminal remedies. But the court said that these subsequent representations should not suffice to defeat a lawsuit properly brought, and we would urge the same result here.
0: Judge, that's time. Uh, Judge Tawaya, if you wanted to allow that rebuttal at this time for the uh, appellant, we could do
2: that.
1: Yes, let's do that.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. I'll be brief. Um, first, in response to your question about where the government raised the final agency action argument, you can find that in our motion to dismiss at uh, and opposition to plaintiff summary judgment motions. That's docket, document number 47 on the district court docket, uh, pages 30 to 31. Um, can second- you, uh, sorry,
1: Can you just repeat that slowly? Yes. Dr. Document 40, docket number 47, pages uh-huh. 30 to
2: 31.
1: Um, what-
2: Pages 30 to 31.
1: Yeah, and what is that? What oh, that's the
2: that uh, government's motion to dismiss. All right, and opposition you. to plaintiff's summary judgment. Um, my, my colleague in the New Hampshire Attorney General's office pointed out that the district court invited us to address the question of whether um, states were encompassed within the term whoever. What we opined in response to that was that that presumption was inconclusive. That That is the conclusion we gave, that, we, that there are other factors that have to be looked at. Um, if if a state for example started you know counterfeiting US currency um, we don't think that because they disagreed with federal uh, monetary policy we don't think that states could escape you know criminal consequences for that just because that relevant counterfeiting statute uses the term whoever um, but the point is that it's it, it, it may well be part of the analysis it's just it's it's not conclusive in itself and that's all we said below and this gets to a bigger point which is the role of the courts is to get involved when there is a credible threat of prosecution. It's it's not to generate disputes. Not It's not to, to, to force the government to give advisory opinions before it is ready to do so. And here, the government has not reached a conclusion that states are encompassed within the language, whoever being engaged in the business of betting or wagering. Um, uh, I think there's a little bit of confusion about the role of OLC as well. OLC does not have a rulemaking function, uh contrary to what Mr. McGill said. This is not an Abbott Labs case because OLC has and DOJ in general has no authority to render binding legal interpretations of of uh of the criminal law that bind private parties. This is not an admin case where an agency can interpret by statute or, or promulgate additional requirements. Um, similarly, the 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 to the extent there's a credible threat of prosecution here, you have to look to, is, is there a risk of enforcement by prosecutors? And here the Deputy Attorney General, the DOJ official who has power over both OLC and prosecutors, has said, we will not prosecute you and we have no position on whether you're cover, covered under the Act. And so to the extent that you think inferences could be drawn about whether OLC was thinking about whether states would be encompassed, that's beside the point. The, the, the official with oversight authority over prosecutors has said the Department has no position on this. Um, finally, the the realtors case is not a, a, a useful case for this court to rely on. That was a First Amendment case in which the court said, um, because of the background understanding that when First Amendment values are at risk, courts must be especially sensitive to the danger of self censorship. Um, and I quote: "Courts will assume a credible threat of prosecution in the absence of compelling contrary evidence." That is a the presumption is flipped in First Amendment cases, and this is not a First Amendment case. Um, If there are no further questions, we would ask that the judgment be reversed.
1: I would ask you one question. What is is the relevance of Abbott Labs uh, of of these issues?
2: There is no relevance of Abbott Labs, Your Honor. I mean, the council has identified a few factual parallels, but the the fundamental point is Abbott Labs is a case about agencies undertaking delegated rulemaking authority to issue rules. And that is not this case. This is a pre-enforcement challenge to a criminal statute. The department gets no deference. It doesn't get to an, uh, elaborate additional, you know, it, it, uh, legal requirements on top of the statute. And an OLC opinion in the abstract is not final agency action. It is just advice to an, another part of the executive branch. Uh,
1: Judge Lynch uh, or Judge Ayara or both of them, do you have any questions?
3: No, I'd just like to thank counsel for um, a very good argument on the case.
1: I certainly enjoy that.
4: Judge Cayada? I have no questions. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This se- thank you, this counsel.
0: Se- thank- this session of the Honorable United States Court of Appeals is now recessed until the next session of the court. God save the United States of America and this Honorable Court. Counsel, you may disconnect from the meeting.